Our text this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. You can find this on page 1022 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, My name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Uh, We continue in our sermon series on 1 John. Uh, In this passage, John references an Old Testament story. And in fact, about a year from now, we'll be starting Genesis right around Advent, and it's one of my favorite Old Testament books. There's so many amazing, gory stories and just crazy things that we can pull so much from. Uh, But one of those stories... Uh, from Genesis 4, actually, is about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Some of you know this story, but some of you may not, so let me recap it for you rather quickly. Um, Cain, as we we read about Adam and Eve, uh, was the eldest son of Adam and Eve, as far as we can tell. Uh, Abel was born after him. We don't know if there were, were other children in between. It doesn't really matter. We know that they were brothers, and we know that they both were in the family business. Cain his main uh, operation in life was to be a gardener. He worked the ground. He grew things for a living. Abel, we know, kept the sheep. And so we learn, and it's fascinating, just kind of reviewing the story, just the little details you find. But um, after the fall, God had in some way set up a worship system for uh, Adam and Eve and their family. And so uh, Cain and Abel, as part of their worship of God, would bring uh, the, f- the fruits of their labor. So Abel would bring uh, a sheep and um, uh, uh, Cain would bring vegetables or fruit or whatever, maybe plant, I don't know, hibiscus, who knows? I don't know what it is, but he was growing it and he would bring it. And so here's what happened. Abel, we learned, was bringing the fattest, best sheep. He was bringing the best of what he had to God. Cain, it says simply that his offering was not, um, what's the word, accepted. And so what we can assume here is that Cain was likely bringing not the best. So he'd bring the sweet potato with a weird bruise on it or something, who knows. But, but he, they were not bringing the same value of an offering to God. And so again, fascinating, God comes to Cain. He doesn't just reject his offering. He's actually coaching Cain and righteousness. And he says, listen, why are you so upset? You know what you have to do. Bring the best thing. And so after this training session, Cain, this may sound familiar, he takes after his parents. He does not listen to God. He chooses his own way. 
It says in the passage that he goes to talk to Abel in the field. We don't have a recording of that conversation. But after that conversation's over, Cain murders Abel. He murders Abel. And so what do we see from this story? Cain, because of his evil ways, and Abel, because of his righteous ways, according to God, caused a rift between the two. And we have this tragedy. The first recorded siblings, that relationship ended in murder. That relationship ended in murder. And of course, you get the famous saying, am I my brother's keeper? God comes and says, where's Abel? Not that he didn't know. Cain says, what am I, my brother's keeper? Why do I know where he is? And God immediately says, his blood calls out to me from the ground. So John uses this story, this tragedy, to give us uh, for two purposes, really. First, he wants to define our expectations for what, it ought to, what we ought to expect from our dealings with the world and the people in the world. But he also wants to use this story to reinforce our Christ-like mentality as we deal with one another. So he wants to give us an idea of what we should expect as we deal with the world. He wants us to, again, reinforce this idea of how we ought to be treating each other in the church. Now, real talk for a moment. Um, This is a passage that, at least for me, is a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching. John is coming for our hearts and the way we live our lives in the world and amongst each other in passages like these. And so... Uh, That's why I'm thankful to be in a Reformed Presbyterian church where we just preach everything, and so we don't get to pick and choose the nice, happy ones. We we go through all of it. And so this morning, I want to just give you that that little bit of a warning so that we can, and and we're going to pray just a moment, we can prepare our hearts or gird our loins, if you will, for what John is asking of us. It's not easy. It may challenge us in some of the ways that we do things in our lives. And so we need to hear the word of God. We need to follow the leading of the Spirit. And that's what we're going to pray right now for us this morning before we jump into the text. Father, I pray this morning that we would be open, that we would be open to whatever you have for us. And what you have for me is different than what you have for everyone else in here. I pray that we would listen open our hearts to what the Spirit has to say through the very Word of God. I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged, encouraged, convicted this morning. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned before, John is kind of setting up an analogy. Uh, You can see this in verse 12. We should not be like Cain. So in his analogy, he wants us to be analogous in some way to Abel, faithful, righteous towards God. And he wants us not to be like Cain. And I think we're going to see that he is actually drawing the world as similar to Cain. And so what he's saying is that just like between Cain and Abel, there is a rift. There is a separation between God's people and the people of the world. And you can go back to the book of John, the the gospel of John, and see that that God's people, we are considered one way because we are right before, before God in Jesus Christ. When we have faith in Christ, God God calls us in by the miracle of faith. We are given the righteousness of Christ, and so we stand before God right and accepted. But the world, as it says in John, is condemned already. Why? Because they do not believe. And so John is, is noting that this is a separation that has taken place from the very beginning of time, since the fall occurred. Cain and Abel. And so he wants to use this analogy to give us the two things I mentioned before. So let's take... And look at, verse, look at verse 13 with me. 
What should we expect in our dealings with the world? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We're off to a good start this morning, okay? We're off to a great, fun start. Uh, Listen, we should expect opposition from the world. Expect it. John is calling us to something very difficult in verse 13, and here's what it is. He's calling us to give up completely the expectation that we will be accepted by the world. To give up the expectation that we will be accepted by the world as followers of Christ. If we are followers of Christ, if we're born again to a new life, if we are children of our Father in heaven, we're no longer children of the devil, we are automatically on a collision course with the world and their ideologies. Just the reality of it. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. And so because we're on a collision course, when we act out our faith, when we interact with the world, we can expect one of two things. Either they're going to think we're total fools. We saw this last week in, the chap- in verse 1 of chapter 3. The world does not know us because it did not know who? Him. They don't know us because they don't know him. I was, I was listening to a sermon by Albert Muller this week, and he, he said, we cannot unweird doctrine. We can't unweird it. And he was talking about, I say this sometimes, my super creepy voice, have you been washing the blood of the lamb? Like, listen, that's a real phrase, and it's actually really weird. That's why that's funny. Are you washing the blood of the lamb? That you can't unweird doctrine. You can't make something that is supernatural natural. And so when we talk to the world about Jesus Christ and we share what we believe, we can't expect that they're going to be like, oh, that makes sense. They're going to be like, that's a little weird. Or... They will find it offensive. And we can see this from verse 12. Why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His brothers were righteous. So John in verse 18 actually describes how we ought to interact with the world. He's he's very helpful. This is a very practical way of looking at things. Look at verse 18. We're going to jump around a little bit, but you can follow along, I think. Little children, let us not love the world in word or talk, okay, but in deed and in truth. This is, a, this is great advice. This is great advice. Think about all the talk that transpires between the world and Christians these days. Think about all the talk. And actually, I was thinking about that conversation between Cain and Abel. We don't have a transcript, but we can imagine the things that maybe were said. I can imagine that Cain was like, listen, bro, stop bringing the fat cheap. Can you stop that? I want to bring the bruised sweet potato. You keep bringing the best. Let's, let's, let's make a deal. If you're not bringing the best, then we don't, either, neither one of us have to. And whatever Abel said, it caused Cain to act out in anger. But think about some of the things that the world has. Have you noticed that the world has a lot of demands of us? Have you noticed that? The world demands things of us. They want to know if we're on their program or not. So here's some things that I just, just off the top of my head, what is the world asking the church? Are you going to wear a mask or not? Are you going to vote for this person or that person? Are you going to affirm this lifestyle or not? Are you going to do the things that we do? Are you going to love the things that we love or not? It's a lot of conversation going on. 
And with these questions, I, I feel this, I'm sure some of you do too, there comes a pressure to give an answer that satisfies the inquirer. I want to give them an answer that makes them feel like either I'm normal or we fit in or we're the same. Or maybe some of you want to give an answer that just makes them really mad. I don't know. Either way, there's conversation. And what John is saying in verse 18 is talk is cheap. It's not about picking the right words. The right words don't matter. What matters is, is deed and truth. We're, we're to minister to the world in deed and in truth. We're to love them by meeting their needs, taking action in their life. That's what that word means, taking action. We're to love them by remaining committed to the truth. The best thing we can actually do is just be transformed by the very word of God ourselves. Brennan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, says it this way. Listen, if God is creator, okay, if God is, is all-powerful, singular power in the universe, if sin is real, it's the real problem, if Jesus is who he says he is and he's the only hope, then what is relevant to the world doesn't matter. What matters is what is true. Do you hear the difference? It doesn't matter what's relevant. What matters is what is true. So as we face these questions, as we face these demands, we've heard all through 1 John, the starting point. The starting point is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And he starts verse 14, his response to, hey, don't be surprised the world hates you. His first thing he says after that is, we know that we have passed into death, from death into life. Think about all the things Christ has done. He's brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life, spiritual darkness to spiritual light from orphans, children of the devil, to now children of God, fully accepted. And out of all that, we're called to be pure as he is pure. We've read this and heard this all through 1 John. And so as we face these questions, as we face these demands, where does it begin? It begins, our answer begins with, I follow Christ. I follow Christ. We go back to our confession of faith. And it says here, and this is his commandment. Here's what the commandment is. We believe in the name of the, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. We'll get to that in a moment. But first and foremost, we believe in the name of Jesus. So as we respond to these demands, as we respond to these questions, it has to start with a thoughtful application of Scripture to our lives. We can run circles. You'll know, you know this. We can run circles around ourselves trying to find the right answer for the right person to make them feel better about who we are and what we say. Jesus calls us to worship him. We're to respond in deed and in truth. And so as we do that, here's what we should expect. <laughs> as, we, as, we, as we worship God and respond in deed and in truth, we should expect him to scoff at us because we're foolish. Are you, are you serious? Are you washing the blood of the lamb? You're such a weirdo. And we should expect them to be angry. Because our righteousness, not because we're good people, but what we claim to have before Jesus Christ, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb for real, that, with that, that washing cleanses, of our, of, cleanses us of our sin, and we stand before God not guilty. That, that, that makes them feel as though we're condemning their behavior. The same as Cain felt about Abel. And so what is the temptation? I feel this as a preacher every week. Our temptation is that if we could adjust the wording just a little bit, then, man, it would be so much more palatable 
to the world. I love daylight savings time. Free spotlight. Okay. Um, I want to tell a story, but that would just waste time. So we're going to move on. Okay. Listen, we're not called to be brazenly rude. We're called to speak winsomely, to season our speech with salt. But we're called to share the truth. Listen, at times I know it feels culturally like we're on the ropes. It does. It feels like, how how are we going to get out of this? What's going on? We feel like it's going to win. Like culture's going to win. But here's the reality. I want to share something with you. The theories that this world comes up with. In fact, let me say it this way. The world is actually really good at diagnosing problems. It's good at seeing problems. But what what they are, it's impossible for them to do is actually come up with real solutions. And so the theories and the solutions that the world is, is providing our culture with, this is what will fix it. I have to tell you, it may not happen in our lifetime, but those theories and those solutions are going to collapse catastrophically because they stand against the word of God. And so here's the question, church, who will be there? What will be there when those things collapse? What is the only true medicine for the soul? The gospel. The gospel. And that's the end of it. The only thing that, that, that will help, the only thing that will heal these people who are crushed by the ideologies of the world is the gospel. And so this is why we must remain committed to the word of God in this generation and the next, because we have the thing that can actually save. We have the thing that is real hope. So to adjust our words and to worry about what they think and to disregard the truth, we're doing them a huge disservice. Second thing that John calls us to, he uses the story of Cain and Abel again, and he's highlighting another issue that he keeps coming back to and back to and back to. I was thinking actually as I'm thinking, man, he talks about loving each other a lot in this book, and I was thinking about, uh, I'm going to take you back to eighth grade physics, Newton's first law of motion, all right? Uh, So those of you that can rattle it off, nerd, Um, but I I could probably do that. I love physics in eighth grade. I never followed up on that, but um, listen... Uh, an object in motion tends to stay in motion, and an object at rest tends to stay at rest unless another force acts upon it. So uh, an object, this cup, wants to stay still unless it's moving, and then it wants to keep moving, but friction and other things keep it from doing so. I think John's first rule, first law of human sinfulness is that we keep returning back to our selfishness. He continues again and again to say, love one another. And so you get an idea of what's going on in this church in Asia Minor this false teaching and all these things, it's caused a massive prickly relationship amongst the church. And he's reminding them and us, love one another. Love one another. Our sinful hearts tend to stay sinful unless acted upon by another force. That force, of course, being God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we tend to rest back into selfishness. We tend to go back to looking out for number one. And so we tend to think that our rights, our needs, our desires come before others do. And so John keeps reminding us, love one another. Look at verses 14 through 17. We're going to skip 16 and come back to it in just a moment. Let me read this to you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Oh, skipping 16 down to 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I love this because John, first of all, says, listen, hate among God's people is a tragedy. As much as the tragedy of Cain and Abel is a tragedy, so is hate among God's people. But then I also love this because he gives us a very practical way in which to love one another. John's being very practical here. He's saying physical, emotional, relational, spiritual needs, if we have the resources to meet those things and we see it and we close our hearts off, that's not what God wants us to do. Our care in the church is for the whole person. Spurgeon, I was reading one of his commentaries on 1 John, and he sometimes says it like no one else can. He said, Zealous words will not warm the cold. Tender words won't feed the hungry. (laughs) Real action in each other's lives. We see a need, John is saying, just meet it. Just meet it. But loving other Christians is grounded in a very specific reality, and that's why we come back to verse 16. By this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. So before I finish the verse, think of all the ways Jesus did that for you. All the ways Jesus laid down his life for his people. And here's how he finishes the verse. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The reality and out of which we love one another is based on what Christ has done for us as individuals. So what's the big question? How should I treat others in the church? Well, here's the question in return. Jesus was famous for doing that. Here's the question in return. How does Jesus see that person? How does Jesus treat that person in the same way that Jesus sees them and treats them is how we ought to see them and treat them. John is calling us to another difficult thing, as if one wasn't enough this morning. He's calling us to give up the idea that we live autonomous lives. That we live autonomous lives. He says very plainly, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That word means to give up a right or a possession. We can easily glaze over these things. I want to marinate, let us marinate in this idea for a moment. Just thinking about myself, because Jesus gave it all for me, a sinner, what am I called to do? I'm called to give up what is necessary to love my brothers and my sisters. Speaking of myself again, because Jesus was not repelled by my sin, which is deep and dark and awful, I'm called to enter into the lives of sinners just like me. And because Jesus' love for me was unconditional, my love for the brothers and the sisters is called to be the same. And so the reality for me is this, and it's hard to think this way. My choices are not my choices. 
My opinions and rights are not mine to serve myself. My liberties are not my own for my own benefit. No, I'm called to give it all as Christ did for my brothers and my sisters. We're all called to this. Thinking about these two things, that we should expect never to be accepted by the world and that we're called to live these lives that are not autonomous. Man, I think in our culture, we could probably label these, these things as extreme. Man, John's asking a lot, but here's the reality. He's just calling us into discipleship. <laughs> That's what discipleship is, to follow Christ, to love the brothers. That's again from that verse, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. He's simply describing what it means to follow Christ. And the beautiful thing is he empowers us. He empowers us. It's not just about pulling up our bootstraps and and dealing with people hating us in the world and pulling up your bootstraps and loving each other in the best way we know how. No, the Spirit moves in. God's in control of all of this. And so from the Spirit, we know what is right and we know what is wrong and we're given the power to do it. And so it's in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we are led into a supernatural way of life. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? We're led into a supernatural way of life. And what does that way do? It removes us from the way of a broken world dominated by sin. And so as we live in that way that God has given us, it should be expected (laughs) that it doesn't match up with what the world is doing or saying or believing. And that finished work of Christ, what does it do? It sets us on a path with other people who are, who are receiving that finished work, and it's a path where we love each other as Christ has loved us already, where we give everything up for one another. This level of discipleship The Father requires it. The Father requires it. This is how my people, my children live. Jesus made it possible through his death and resurrection. He suffered everything, the loss of everything, so that we might have not only an example, but the power to live as he lived. And then... The icing on the cake, they sent the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, to live in our hearts and enable us. And that Spirit is committed to seeing us through to become full disciples, followers of Christ, that that love the world in deed and in truth and love each other in practical and in the way that Christ loved us. And so the question then is, where do I begin? This morning, I think it's a good chance to talk about conviction. My prayer is that, that, that all of us, in some way, are hearing that still, small voice, the Spirit speaking to us, that tinge of conviction. Is there something that God is pointing out to you saying, let's address that together? Remember, in our sin, God is not rubbing our nose in it. He has warmed for us an affection in our areas where we sin the most. And so he comes and he says, I forgive you, I love you, I'm with you. And what do we do in response? We're supposed to trust God that he is true, that he loves, 
but he's powerful and we're to obey and know that he loves us. And so this morning, as we eat this bread and we drink this juice, it's not just a snack, right? It's not, not a very good snack. If you were gonna have a snack, this is not what you choose. A cube of bread and a little cup of juice. No, this is not a snack. This is Jesus saying, feed on me. He's declaring, I am all that you need for a spiritual resource. And so in this moment where I'm calling you to something difficult, come to me, follow me. So this morning, what I want us to do, we've not yet had a confession of sin, but let us take a few moments of silence. Let's let the Spirit speak to our hearts. Where is that tinge of conviction? Where do we feel God leading us? And let us submit ourselves to that and use the Lord's Supper as a way to commit ourselves not to doing it right, but to Jesus Christ. Let's just take a few moments. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing here in just a moment. Father in heaven, I confess this morning, I feel you reminding me that I need to continue to see people as you see them. And so Lord, publicly I say, forgive me when my agenda, my preferences get in the way of me loving others as you have loved me. And so, Father, I pray for myself and others here who maybe feel the same thing. Give us those eyes. Give us those hearts. May we commit ourselves to you, and as we learn about who you are, may that transfer to those around us. Change us. Change us. So this morning, as all of us come with whatever sin we feel the need to confess, Whichever direction we feel the Spirit pulling us, I pray that this, this bread and this wine or this juice, that we be reminded that, that Jesus Christ is here with us in spirit. And it's better than having him here in person. It's, it's much better because he resides in us. He guides us. He speaks to us. And so we, above all people in history, are blessed to live in the church age after the cross. And so this morning, as we participate in this supper together, may, may we remember the cross, remember its pain, remember what nailed you there, our sin, but also may we remember its victory and its power and its beauty. Pray all these things in the name of the crucified one, Jesus Christ, amen.